Exodus chapter 5. Let's read the chapter. I'll read it and you can follow along. <coughs> Exodus 5. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went in and told Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Let my people go that they may hold a fast to me in the wilderness. And Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, nor will I let Israel go. So they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go three days' journey into the desert and sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence and with the sword. Then the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people from their work? Get back to your labor. And Pharaoh said, Look, the people of the land are many now, and you make them rest from their labor. So the same day Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their officers, saying, You shall no longer give to the people straw to make brick as before. Let them go gather straw for themselves, and you shall lay on them the quota of bricks which they made before. You shall not reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore they cry out, saying, Let us go and sacrifice to our God. Let more work be laid on the men that they may labor in it, and let them not regard false words. And the taskmasters of the people and their officers went out and spoke to the people, saying, Thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go get yourselves straw where you can find it, yet none of your work will be reduced. So the people were scattered abroad throughout all the land of Egypt to gather stubble instead of straw. And the taskmasters forced them to hurry, saying, Fulfill your work, your daily quota, as, they, as when there was straw. And so the officers of the children of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters set over them, were beaten and were asked, Why have you not fulfilled your task in making brick both yesterday and today and before? And the officers of the children of Israel came and cried out to Pharaoh, saying, Why are you dealing thus with your servants? There is no straw given to your servants, and they say to us, Make brick, and indeed your servants are beaten, but the fault is in your own people. But he said, You are idle, idle. Therefore you say, Let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Therefore go now and work, for no straw shall be given to you. Yet you shall deliver the quota of bricks. And the officers of the children of Israel saw that they were in trouble after it was said, you shall not reduce any bricks from your daily quota. Then they came out from Pharaoh and met Moses and Aaron who stood there to meet them. And they said to them, let the Lord look on you and judge because you have made us abhorrent in the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants to put a sword in their hand to kill us. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Lord, why have you brought trouble on this people? Why is it you have sent me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people. Neither have you delivered your people at all. Father, open this word to us. Reveal the gospel to us. Let it be as good seed planted in the good soil of our hearts. Bring forth a righteous harvest of righteous fruit that you would be glorified in your church, in your people, in all the earth. In Jesus' name, amen. So in Exodus 5, we see here that Moses has now come from the mountain. He's come before the children of Israel. He's performed the three signs before the children of Israel that God told him to perform so that they would believe that he was indeed sent by God. And now they said, okay, you are truly from God. You are our deliverer. Now Moses and Aaron go to Pharaoh to convey to Pharaoh that God has commanded that Pharaoh is to let his people go. And what I want us to see in this chapter, what I want to focus on are two questions that we 
that stand out in this chapter. The first question that stands out is in chapter or in verse 2. And in verse 2, when Moses and Aaron go to confront Pharaoh, the question that Pharaoh asks in verse 2 is this, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? That's the first question that we want to look at. The other question that we're going to look at is in verse 22, asked by Moses. And after Moses goes and he confronts Pharaoh, and it doesn't go the way Moses was hoping or expected it to go, Moses goes back to the Lord after he is chastised by the children of Israel for bringing this trouble upon them. Moses goes back to the Lord, and the Scripture records this question that Moses has. Moses asks God when he returns, he says, Lord, why have you brought trouble on this people? Why is it you have sent me? So two questions, one asked by Pharaoh and one asked by Moses. And these two questions echo the questions that humanity has and continues to ask. We have to consider the first question, the question asked by Pharaoh. Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? That's really an important question. Whether Pharaoh understood the, its importance, whether Pharaoh understood its significance, this is a very significant and important question that every human being on the face of this earth will have to deal with, will have to struggle with. Until we settle the question, who is the Lord, there is no other questions for us to settle. Knowing who is the Lord opens the way for us to navigate all other questions. Knowing who is the Lord is knowing the path of life that leads to the fullness of joy. That's Psalm 1611. You have shown me the path of life, and in your presence is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. It is a path filled with great joy, but it is also a path filled with great hardship. It's filled with great beauty. It has great valleys, great mountains, but it also has great shadow. But it has great light. It is the only path worth traveling for all the danger, toil, and trouble that we may see and experience. The beauty of the way and the destination make all worth it. I sat in on our Sunday school lesson today and it dovetails perfectly with this message. Because very often in life, all we can see and all we can discern and all we experience in moments of time is the danger, the toil, the hardship, the pain, and the suffering. And in those moments and in the midst of that, it's hard to see, it's hard to discern the beauty, it's hard to look past the moment to the ultimate destination. But this is what the scripture over and over and over reminds us. This is the point of God recording his word through failed and frail men, preserving it for us and giving it to us so that we have this record of how God deals with humanity. We have this record of how God is writing his story. Who is the Lord? We have all at some time or another asked this very question, directly or indirectly. It's a question that continues to be asked by those of the world. It's a, con it's a question that continues to be asked, whether knowingly or unknowingly, by those who profess faith in the Lord. but oftentimes live consistently contrary to him. Or we ask the question in our moments of weakness, in our moments of pain, in our moments of suffering, who is the Lord? 
God, who are you? So let's look at this question, who is the Lord? On one hand, that is a question that is much too deep for us to answer. But on the other hand, I think this question has a very simple answer. It's an answer so simple that if we ignore it, we do so at our own peril. Who is the Lord? In Exodus 3.14, God proclaimed to Moses, when Moses is standing before the burning bush, remember, he's just out minding his own business, tending his father-in-law's sheep. He wanders up to the mountain of God. He didn't even know it was the mountain of God. He just up on top of this mountain, and he sees this bush burning. And Moses said, I think I will now depart from my way and go over and look at this bush that burns with fire but is not consumed. And he approaches the bush, and God speaks to him from the midst of the burning bush, and he says, Moses, take off your sandals, for this is holy ground. And from that bush, God tells Moses what he is to do that he is to go to Egypt. And after God tells him all of this, Moses says, well, God, who am I to tell the people who sent me? What, what am I to tell them when they ask, well, who told you to come and be our deliverer? What is your name? Who are you, Lord? That's really what Moses asked. Who, who are you? Who is the Lord? Who are you? And God's answer was, I am that I am. Tell the people I am have sent you. I am that I am. It's a hard concept. It's a hard word. It's a hard thing to translate into our English conception of things. But really, from everything I've been able to read and study, the best translation of what this really means is I am that I am. I shall be what I shall be. Well, who is this great I am? He is the Lord. He is the creator and the Savior that commands our worship. The Lord, Yahweh, or we translate it in English, Jehovah, this is his name, and he does not suggest that we worship him. He does not invite us to worship him. He does not give us the option to worship who he is in his very self-existence, and that's what that name means. It means the self-existent God. You see, he didn't come from someplace or someone. He is he always has been. He always will be. He is right now. I am. He is the self-existent God, and His very self-existence commands worship from His creation. We don't worship because we understand all. We worship because He is. Now, I don't know what you believe, but I believe this to be true. I don't think the birds sing by accident. I, I believe the birds are worshiping. I don't believe the wind whistles by accident. I believe even the wind and even the, the things we can't hear, the scientists will tell us that every object emits an electromagnetic field and, and it can be translated to sound. And I believe the very creation all around us is worshiping its creator. Now, you might not know that. You might not understand that, but it doesn't really matter whether you or I know it or understand it. The reality is that is happening. Why? Because God, in the very essence, in the very reality of who he is, commands worship. And when I mean he commands worship, I don't just mean God says, hey, I'm commanding you to worship me because I'm just a really self-centered guy. No, that's not what I mean. What I mean is his very existence means that worship is going to come forth. If you're here today to worship the Lord, 
please understand that you are here because he has given you the grace to worship him. He has given you the grace to look to him as the only true and living God who is the only Savior. There is no other Savior. There is no other way to salvation but the Lord. He manifests himself to Moses in a burning bush. He manifests himself through signs and wonders in Egypt. He manifests himself in a pillar of fire by night and a pillar of cloud by day as he led the children of Israel through the wilderness. He manifests himself as the word made flesh to dwell among us. And the Bible says we have beheld his glory as of the only begotten of the Father. He manifests himself continuously in his invisible attributes that are clearly seen. Paul writes this in his letter to the Romans. We are without excuse because he has manifest himself. He has revealed himself. His invisible attributes are clearly seen. That's kind of a brain twister, isn't it? Who is the Lord? Jesus Christ is the Lord. He is the Word who is God. He is the Word made flesh. He is the Son of God. He is the Savior of the world. He is the Lord and He commands our worship and commands our trust in Him. The problem is that our hearts are sin-hardened. And the solution is that we need new hearts. We need hearts that are able to trust Him. Hearts that are able to worship Him and love Him. We need a new heart from the Lord, poured into by His Holy Spirit, filled with His love, so that we will return that love to Him. Until God gives you a new heart, until God pours His love in you, you and I have no capacity to love God because there is no love in us. Paul writes it this way in his letter to the Ephesians, Ephesians 5.8, I quote it quite often. You once were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. How does the darkness become light? Well, the creator of light, the one who spoke light forth, the one who is light, must change darkness to light. God's not interested in repairing our hearts because our hearts in their very nature are hard and dead and unable to love and worship. So what God must do is put a new heart in us. And with that heart, we now can worship. We now can love. We now can desire Him. He commands worship. His grace gives us the power and the ability to obey, to respond to Him in love. He came and He manifested Himself among us as one of us, and He died so that we could die with Him. He lives now so that we can live with Him. Now and for eternity. Your life in Christ, eternal life, doesn't begin one day when you get to heaven. It begins right now, the very moment God puts a new heart in your chest and a new spirit in this vessel and he makes you his very own. That's the moment you have entered into life eternal. That's the very moment you go from being darkness to light in the Lord. He lives now so that we can live with Him. His death and His life through the cross is given to us by grace through faith. God told Moses that He would harden Pharaoh's already hard heart. You read this. and We, we looked at this in, in these chapters preceding chapter 5. We saw this in chapter 4. We saw it in chapter 3. When God tells Moses, he says, Moses, this is what's going to happen. You're going to go down to Egypt. You're going to confront Pharaoh. I'm going to give you 
all of these signs to do, but understand that Pharaoh is not going to let my people go. Pharaoh, time and time again, is going to harden his heart, and I will make it even harder, God told Moses. In full unbelief, Pharaoh asks this question, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? The Lord by his very self-existence commands that Pharaoh obey, but Pharaoh, like all of humanity, had a heart hardened by sin, and in Pharaoh's case, God allowed that heart to become even harder. You and I were born with hearts hardened by sin. And the difference between us who trust the Lord and Pharaoh is that God did not allow your heart and my heart to continue to grow harder. But He gave us new hearts, not because we wanted God, but because God wanted us. This goes to the very fundamental foundation of this question. Who is the Lord? You see, the Lord is not someone we wanted. The Lord is someone who wanted us. You don't love the Lord today because you woke up one morning and decided to love Him. You love the Lord today because God said, you will love me and I will give you a heart to love me. Has God given you a new heart? Do you desire Him? Do you desire to worship Him? See, that's the difference between us and Pharaoh. Pharaoh did not want God. And God chose to glorify Himself through Pharaoh's hardened heart. And here's the reality. God is glorified in our belief as well as in our unbelief. Let's turn quickly over to Romans chapter 9. It's worth taking a detour to Romans to look at this very important passage of Scripture. Now, the question is, who is the Lord? And if we don't understand who the Lord is, it's going to be difficult for us to understand anything else. And this is why there are a lot of confused people in the earth today. Romans chapter 9, let's begin in verse 15. We could begin up farther, but let's, as we're talking about Pharaoh, let's just begin there. Paul is writing to the church at Rome, and he is recounting to them the very things that we are studying right now in, 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 in Exodus. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. So then it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. For the Scripture says to the Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I may show my power in you, and that my name may be declared in all the earth. From today's date, that was declared about 36, 3,700 years ago. Somewhere just shy of 4,000 years ago, that was declared. And here we are today, recounting the glory of God, just as God said we would. Verse 18, therefore, Paul writes, he has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills, he hardens. You will say to me then, here's another question that comes very naturally after that exchange. Why does he still find fault for who has resisted his will? But indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, why have you made me like this? He says, for this very purpose have I raised up Pharaoh. 
What was the purpose for, of God raising up Pharaoh? God tells us right there for his glory, that his glory, that his power would be revealed. Through belief or through unbelief, God will be glorified. Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? Our very life hangs on our answer to that question. You will have, we all have to answer this question. And we will answer it sooner or we will answer it later. Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? Here's what Paul writes in his letter to the Philippians. Because here is the reality. We will all bow before Him and we will all know that He is Lord. There is never going to be a question. There is going to come a point in time when all humanity, past, present, and future, will bow before the Lord. In that day, Pharaoh who asked the question, who is the Lord that I should obey His voice? He's already found out who the Lord is. But he will bow before him. All humanity will bow before him. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. If you do not know who is the Lord, cry out to Him. Call upon His name. Ask Him to reveal Himself to you and give to you His grace that will give you eyes to see and ears to hear and heart to worship and adore Him in love. Because there is coming a day, sooner or later, when all creation will know who is the Lord. Now let's consider the question that Moses had for God when he returned from what seemed to be his failed encounter with Pharaoh. Here's... Here's something else that we need to consider. We too often see temporary setbacks and failures as permanent instead of simply part of God's greater plan and purpose. We too often cannot discern the dawn in the midst of our greatest darkness. But the sun has risen and his light is come. Moses asked the same question every believer and every non-believer asks. Why? Why, God? As we consider the question asked by Moses, consider all that led up to that point. Now think about this. Remember, Moses witnesses the burning bush. He finds himself in the presence of God. God performs the miracles for Moses. Remember, he turned his rod into a snake and then back into a rod again. He had him put his hand in his coat and it came out leprous, and he put it back in, and it came out healthy. Then he had him take water and pour water out, and as it hits the dry ground, it turns into blood. So God does all of these signs, and then he shows Moses all the signs he's going to do in Egypt to make Pharaoh ultimately let the children of Israel go. God even gives... Aaron to Moses to be his spokesman to ease Moses' fear about having to speak. God is with Moses as Moses performs the signs for the children of Israel that gave them the confidence to accept Moses as this leader, as this deliverer truly sent by God. And it seemed like a great plan. 
right? I mean, Moses is standing there seeing these miraculous things happen. He, he gets a preview of all that God's going to do in Egypt. I mean, what can go wrong, right? Well, the same thing that went wrong in the garden in the beginning, sin. It's what we fail to take into consideration much of the time as we ask, why God? Why death? Why destruction? Why war? Why turmoil? Why confusion? Why this? Why that? Well, the simple answer is this, because of sin. But if we stop there, and we just say, well, it's sin's fault, and we don't understand that God has an eternal plan, and we're in the midst of that, and we haven't seen the consummation of it, we haven't seen the end of the plan yet, but he's told us what the end is. He's shown us what the result will be. We just don't have all the detail of how that's going to all play out, especially in our own lives. While God was showing Moses all of these signs and wonders and building up his confidence, God did not fail to warn Moses also that Pharaoh's heart was hard and that God was going to make it even harder. But with all the demonstration of divine power and God's words of assurance, the hardness of Pharaoh's heart didn't seem to be a problem compared to the power and the promise of God. So Moses goes, and it doesn't turn out the way that he thought it was going to turn out. Now, God never promised that he will tell us exactly what or how things will happen. He does promise us that whatever and however things happen, that they are working together for good and for glory. God did tell Moses, you're going to run into opposition. He didn't tell him exactly what that opposition was going to look like, how hard, how difficult, how long it would be. But he also told Moses, this is what's going to happen. I will deliver the children of Israel. And somewhere between point A and point Z, we kind of lose touch with reality, and we want to go from point A to Z all in one fell swoop, but not have to deal with the realities of how God actually is going to bring about that plan and that deliverance and this is where Moses was God never promised Moses that it would be easy or painless but he did promise the ultimate result would be deliverance God's promise to us is the same life is not easy or painless but God has given to us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ this is what is recorded for us in Ephesians the first chapter those blessings are more real and more tangible than the earth itself. They are solid and they are eternal. Every spiritual blessing in heavenly places doesn't mean they're tucked away for us somewhere to get one day when we get there. What that means is they are real now. They are ours now. They are heavenly. That means they're eternal. They can't pass away. They can't be taken away they can't be stolen away they are secured for us in Christ and they are ours now but we sometimes mistake God's promise of ultimate success with the promise of convenient success when we are inclined to talk about success from God's point of view we must always use as our reference point the cross of Christ. But we don't like to talk about the cross because the reality is the cross is not a pleasant thing, though it is a glorious thing. There is a, do you understand the difference between a pleasant thing and a glorious thing? All things that are glorious are not necessarily pleasant. If we were able to see God face to face right now in all of his glory, it would be terrible. We would, we would faint with fear. That doesn't make God less good. <laughs> that doesn't make God less gracious. That's just 
who God is. And God is, God is so beyond our ability to comprehend him, he had to send his son in the likeness of human flesh so that we could just be in his presence and not be totally freaked out and die of a heart attack. He made us in his image so that his son could come among us. But though Jesus looked like a man, though Jesus took on the likeness of human flesh, and Jesus was a man, he was God. He was no less glorious than the Father. And what God is doing in the earth today is no less glorious than what God did in Egypt. It's no less glorious than a burning bush that's not consumed. Though we'd all just be amazed if we saw that. It's no less glorious than a Red Sea split wide open. It's no less glorious than a pillar of fire, a pillar of cloud. What we have right now is no less glorious than that. The question is, do we have eyes to see it? Do we have hearts that capture it that, and minds that know it? When we consider the cross of Christ, we come to the stark reality that there was nothing convenient or easy about it. But to say it was a success would be an understatement more vast than we can imagine. It was much, much more than just a success. Though it didn't look very successful, did it? The Son of God beat to a pulp, a bloody pulp, nailed to a tree, doesn't look like success in human terms. And this is why we must have eyes of faith to see beyond our humanness. That we need to have eyes that are eternally focused to see beyond the temporal. And being able to do that is being able to deal with this first question that we ask, who is the Lord? And when we begin to understand who the Lord is, then the questions why begin to fall into place. I didn't say all the answers fell into place. I said the questions why begin to fall into place because we begin to understand who the Lord is and that God works very differently than we work. God thinks very differently than we think. God deals very differently than we deal and thank God. God, he does. As we live life, if we do not keep the big picture in view, as we walk through the circumstances and details of life, we can get lost in the weeds. We can get swallowed up in the details of life, or as Jesus referred to them, the cares of this world. Or we can find ourselves under the heat and wilting fast because we have no depth of root. If we're not rooted in Him, if we're not grounded in the faith, the world will work its way into our life and choke out or burn up what we're trying to hold on to by our own power. And if we are fortunate, though, God in His grace will allow that to happen so as to reveal to us the better way, not trusting in our own power, in our own ability, but trusting in Him. Just when we think we've heard from God, just when God has come through for us and demonstrated His power and glory, God allows us to walk into a situation or circumstance that takes us in the opposite direction from where we thought God was going. Moses obeys God, confronts Pharaoh just as he was instructed, but the confrontation didn't go as Moses or the children of Israel imagined. Pharaoh's response was basically this. Oh, your God wants you to leave Egypt? Well, who is this God of yours that I should obey him? You have too much time on your hands dreaming up these things. Since you are so idle, you make the same quota of bricks, but we're not going to give you straw anymore. You're going to have to go get your own now. I'm not going to decrease your workload. I'm going to exponentially increase your workload, and give you the same amount of time to do it. No more help, 
you work harder and you work faster. That was not the response that Moses thought he was going to get from Pharaoh. And it sent Moses and the children of Israel in the exact opposite direction from where they thought God was taking them. Not only were they not free, but they had their workload increased with no more time to perform it, magnifying their bondage even more than before. And the response of Moses was classic. Lord, why have you brought trouble on this people? Lord, why? Lord, why have you sent me? Lord, why? Why this, God? These are the very same questions we have for God when the seemingly foolproof plan does not go the way we expect. Even though God has given us clear warning that tribulation is part of the journey and part of the process that leads to our salvation, presently and ultimately. Salvation is what I'm not, it's not what I'm going to ultimately get. Salvation is what I have right now, presently in Christ. We must keep our eye on the prize. What's the prize? Christ is the prize. God is the prize. It's not my prayer answered. It's not the thing I want that God gives me. It's not the thing I need that God gives me. That's not the prize. We want to think that's the prize, but that's not the prize. Christ is the prize. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, we must keep the big picture in mind, not to the exclusion of the details, but in order that we hold the details in their proper place with the proper tension as we navigate our journey with the guidance of the Holy Spirit and God's illuminated Word. If we keep the big picture in mind, it helps us hold the details. It helps us hold the small things. When I mean the small things, I mean the things that interrupt our life on a daily basis. Some of them minor, some of them very major. If we don't hold these things in the right place with the right tension, we lose sight of the big picture and we get lost in the weeds. Don't get lost in the weeds. The cares of the world and the tribulation of this world are used by the enemy to distract us and wear us down. The way we avoid this is to keep our eyes on the prize and to keep the big picture in mind. And when we find ourselves getting lost in the weeds, either by lust, the lust of this world, or the care and tribulation of this world, we need to repent and turn our hearts to Jesus. When we begin to lose focus of the big picture, when we begin to lose focus of the prize and we find ourselves caught and lost in the weeds, that's when we know we need to repent. We need to turn our hearts back to Jesus. We must remember and know that His grace is sufficient. When life does not go the way we desire or expect, when circumstances seem more than we can handle, God reminds us, that His grace is sufficient. When all else fails, and that does happen, God's grace never fails. The only way we can do anything, the only way we have anything, the only way we are anything is by His grace. It's by His grace that we have been given the prize and we have eyes to see it. It is by grace that we have been given a mind to keep the big picture. It is by grace that the weeds do not catch us. It is by grace that we find the sufficiency of grace that carries us through. All things are by His grace. It is by grace that we know that He that He is the answer to all of our questions. That may sound like a very simplistic thing, but it is a very true thing, church. Whatever questions we have, He is the answer. Until God's saving grace captures us, our sin-hardened hearts continue to grow harder. 
we will go through life with our eyes on the wrong prize, with a small view in mind, caught in the weeds and never finding sufficiency in anything or anyone. We will be forever searching and never finding until it's too late. That day your knee bows before the Lord is not the day you want to figure out who is the Lord. That's not the day you want to have all your questions answered. You want to look to the Lord. You want to know who is the Lord before then. You want to give those things to Him now and trust that He is the answer that we need as believers until we come to know that it is by God's grace alone that we are now who we are and have what we have in Christ. We will continue to struggle with the questions of who and why and what and when and how. It's not that we should not ask questions. I believe actually questions are very good and very, very beneficial. And there's a healthy way to hold and ponder our questions that help us grow. But there's also an unhealthy and a sinful way to do that. Pharaoh's question was rooted in rebellion from a hardened heart of sin. Moses' question was rooted in grace from a yearning heart that desired to know and understand God's plan and purpose. <clears throat> Moses found grace in the eyes of the Lord, and Pharaoh did not. Just like Peter found grace in the eyes of the Lord, and Judas did not. Remember, God prayed for Peter. He didn't pray for Judas. Both Moses and Pharaoh were undeserving. Pharaoh's question led to more unbelief and a greater hardening. Moses' question led to greater faith and a heart that yearned for God and broke for, the, for God's rebellious people. The difference was God's grace. Moses found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Pharaoh did not. Both were undeserving, but only one received what he actually deserved. Pharaoh deservedly received the wrath of God. Moses undeservedly, are you hearing me, church? Moses undeservedly received the grace of God. It's not that Moses deserved God's grace and Pharaoh didn't. Neither one of them deserved it, but God gave it to Moses, but he didn't give it to Pharaoh. The reality is Moses got what he didn't deserve. And Pharaoh got exactly what he deserved. I'm going to trust that you're here today because God has given you not what you deserve, but he's given to you what you don't deserve. You're here today because of his grace. And we have received his grace, not because we've earned it, not because we deserve it, but because God in his kindness and mercy and love chose to give it to us. The difference was not in the men. The difference was in the will of God. Who is the Lord? He is the God and Savior that commands your worship and your love. Why, Lord? God knows why He does what He does. He determines your part in what He does down to the time and place of your birth to the time and place of our death and all things in between. In His grace, He gives us hearts to choose His path instead of our own. You know, Moses didn't have to go to Egypt. Well, why did he then? Because God gave him a heart to obey and go. The same reason you and I obey, because God gives us a heart to choose His way instead of our own. By His grace, we can choose to see the gift and the beauty, or we can choose to harden our hearts even more. Your salvation is not because of you and who you are. It is because of God and who God is. He is the who, and He holds the why. He has no obligation to explain to us, but we have every obligation to trust Him, worship Him, and love Him. Here is what the Bible 
exhorts us to do, to humble ourselves before his mighty hand of power and seek his grace. For his grace is more sufficient. It is more than sufficient in all things. By his grace, he is making all things new and beautiful. And in Christ, he has given you eyes to see it. And by grace, you will experience it for eternity. We're going to come to the table now. This table of grace. Grace doesn't mean that all things are clean and neat and tidy. Grace is messy and hard and brutal. Grace crucified Jesus at the hands of sinful, murderous men who took pleasure in the death of the Son of God. The grace that allowed the murder of the Son of God is the same grace that has brought a new creation that is taking all the broken things and making them better for having been broken. Church, that is what this table celebrates. Celebrates God taking all the broken things and making them better for having been broken. That is what this table calls us to remember. Calls us to remember that. So I, I encourage you to trust in Jesus. And as you trust in Jesus, church, come to the table. Your charge this Sunday is very simple. Keep your eye on Christ who is our prize. Keep the big picture in mind. Don't neglect the small things. Stay out of the weeds and remember in all things that His grace is sufficient. Embrace your weakness that His strength will be perfected in you. Seek His glory.